This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Who is the secret villain of The Mandalorian Season 3? Welcome back to Nerdist News. I'm Hector Navarro, and it's time to hitch a ride on some Purgle because we're heading back to the galaxy far, far away. On Wednesday, we got the third episode of the third season of The Mandalorian, a.k.a. Chapter 19, a.k.a. The Convert, a.k.a. Andor Light. What? While the remains of the Empire have long since been a thorn in the side of Din Djarin and the rest of his Mandalorian covert since season one between various Imperial warlords trying to cling to their former glory, as well as the client who hires Din to capture the child, AKA Grogu, they've been shrouded in a bit more mystery this season. In fact, we're three episodes into this season and we aren't quite sure who the main villain will be. Season one had the client, then Moff Gideon. Season two had Moff Gideon in his full glory. But so far, we've only gotten hints as to the big bad for season three, or even if there will be one at all. However, the latest episode did give us some more hints as to who this mysterious imperial presence could be, and we're going to break them all down and weigh their likelihood. And we're also going to try to answer the most important question of all. Where do you think I got the biscuits? But before we do all of that, we're going to give you a spoiler warning. We're going to have to discuss Chapter 19 of The Mandalorian at length. So if you haven't caught up yet, go practice your Mandalorian creed for a while and then come back to us when you have. This is the way. This is the way. Let's get into the details of the episode a bit as we explore who this mysterious new baddie could be. The episode is bookended with segments involving Din Djarin and Bo-Katan after their dip into the living waters in the mines of Mandalore. When Din Djarin awakens, he's been redeemed. Bo-Katan witnessed his redemption, but she doesn't tell him about the other thing she witnessed, the fabled Mythosaur. Did you see anything alive? Alive? Like what? Nothing. The Imperial bombing of the planet during the purge of Mandalore must have created some seismic shift, allowing the near-extinct Mythosaur to return to a former Mythosaur layer, kind of like Godzilla. Notice she doesn't take her helmet off here. We postulated last week that her seeing the Mythosaur could reignite her faith in the Mandalorian Creed, and as we find out later, along with the title of the episode, it seems likely that this is the case. Welcome, Bo-Katan of Clan Kreese. Our first Imperial entanglement of the episode happens after Grogu almost says his very first words. They're under attack by TIE Interceptors. Din gets into his N1 Starfighter and helps Bo-Katan blast the group. Not bad for an antique. He even rolls a hard six in a move that he's done before that would make Starbuck, I mean Bo-Katan, proud. 
Also, he wastes a proton torpedo on a TIE interceptor. Those dudes don't have shields. That's overkill, Din. Nice shooting. But the initial attack was a ruse to draw them out. Bo-Katan's castle on Kalevala is bombed to smithereens. And before she can get revenge, they're attacked by a lot of interceptors. As Bo-Katan points out, too many for a petty imperial warlord to have. Who could be controlling this many ships? We think there are three main options. From there, we get to the main portion of the episode, following the cloner scientist, Dr. Penn Pershing, on Coruscant as he goes through the New Republic's amnesty program for former Imperials. First off, he gives a TED Talk about his cloning knowledge at the opera house we haven't seen since the classic scene in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, when Anakin Skywalker learns all about the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's important to point out that Dr. Pershing's research was to enhance cloning, where two genetic donors could each contribute their best traits to a new clone. This has got to be why he wanted to use Grogu in his experiments. Someone in the Imperial Remnant wants to find a way to ensure high M counts in a clone. The reading is off the chart. But we're going to get back to this in a second. Afterwards, we get the picture of how apathetic the well-to-do people of Coruscant actually are. For them, the new boss is the same as the old boss because their lives were never on the line. This is how the obviously militaristic First Order is able to gain legitimacy in the galaxy and run around in their Imperial cosplay instead of being stamped out the second they were discovered. It's another Death Star. You always have to fight fascists, people, okay? It's a never-ending battle. While Coruscant was the capital of the Republic and the Empire, it is not the capital of the New Republic. The capital changes every few years. Currently, it's on Chandrilla, Mon Mothma's homeworld, as we learn in The Mandalorian Season 2 when Grogu eats that cookie. Later, the capital will be on Hosnian Prime, which Starkiller Base will destroy. We bring all this up because it brings us to our first option for the big bad of the season, the First Order. The First Order was set up by Palpatine in the event of his death in order to set up the conditions for his return. It was the First Order after his death, after all. Remember Operation Cinder, which Mayfeld references in Season 2? That was Palpatine's plan to destroy Imperial worlds to make sure the Empire truly fell so that no one Imperial warlord could gather enough power to rule Palpatine's Empire. Also, as we see in The Bad Batch, which is currently airing on Disney+, Palpatine was very concerned with cloning knowledge not getting out to anyone other than himself. That's why he destroyed the Kemen Owens and why he's possibly behind Dr. Pershing getting his mind flayed. With Dr. Pershing's knowledge, a hidden First Order would be able to start the experiments that create all the Snoke clones we see in The Rise of Skywalker that pave the way for Palpatine's return on Exegol with the Sith Eternal. The somehow that Poe Dameron is pissed about? That somehow is the fault of Penn Pershing. Dr. Pershing is the somehow. Somehow. And perhaps we could even see a young Snoke himself learn how he got that scar. Maybe they cloned a really effective prison rebellion leader who couldn't swim named Kino Loy. No, 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 no. That would be too much of a stretch. And Star Wars usually works best with only 12 stretches. Never more than 12. There are two bits of circumstantial evidence that also point to it being the First Order. Dr. Pershing reconnects with Lieutenant Elia Kane, now known as Amnesty Officer G-68, another former employee of Moff Gideon. 
When they visit Mount Umate, the carnival music in the background is a version of John Williams' March of the Resistance from The Force Awakens. The show is purposefully trying to diminish the impact of that rousing theme and get us thinking about the sequels along with how crappy and ineffective The New Republic actually is. It's interesting to point out the foreshadowing of Elia Kane setting Pershing up to get in trouble by touching the mountain here, too. Please refrain from physical contact. Doesn't he know that in Star Wars you can't trust the person who holds the glowing red thing in their hand? The second bit of circumstantial evidence is when Dr. Pershing is listening to the history of Coruscant, there's mention that the planet, while considered the center of the galaxy, is not at the galaxy's actual center. In the old extended universe of Star Wars novels and comics, Palpatine's cloning plans after his death centered around a deep core world known as Biss, and this is potentially a nod to that. It's not precisely located at our... Our second option is just a return to the villain of the first two seasons, Moff Gideon. Much of the episode deals with Dr. Pershing trying to fit in with his post-imperial lifestyle as Amnesty Officer L-52. Moff Gideon was captured by the Mandalorian at the end of Season 2. In the opening for this season, Grief Karga mentions he's being put before a New Republic tribunal to get justice. But we learn in this episode that he's escaped. Maybe. Or it was a cover story for hooking him up to a Mind Flayer. But the seed has been planted that perhaps Gideon is in the wind. Later, when Kane betrays Pershing, he himself gets hooked up to a Mind Flayer, which this time is not the creature Saw Gerrera uses in Rogue One called Boar Gullet, or the villain from Stranger Things in the Upside Down, but an electroshock machine. No, it's a Mind Flayer. It's a similar device. And he even tells Amon Calamari that it was a trap. Those dudes already know about traps, Pershing, okay? That's offensive. It would make a lot of sense for Lieutenant Kane to still be working for Moff Gideon in secret if he's truly back on the loose. This might be the most simple option, and you know we're always fans of Occam's Razor here at Nerdist. What? Amnesty Officer M34 also treats the name Moff Gideon with a bit of wariness. He was a dangerous threat even to Imperials, it seems. And he's not the only one who should be wary. Moff Gideon was instrumental in the purge of Mandalore, and him wanting to keep kicking them while they're down fits in with his M.O. Of course he would bomb Bo-Katan's castle and try to kill her. He's kind of a bastard. Our final option for who this hidden villain could be, we also think might be the most likely. It's someone who has been outright teased since season two, Grand Admiral Thrawn. Last season, we learned that Ahsoka is still looking for him after Thrawn and Ezra Bridger got hyperspace whaled into unknown parts of the galaxy. And now we've had an appearance by the Purgle in the Mandalorian season three premiere. That's textbook foreshadowing, folks. Foreshadowing even. Not only has Ahsoka already appeared in The Mandalorian, but her partner in searching for Ezra and Thrawn is also a Mandalorian, Sabine Wren. We've long suspected that this season could introduce these characters from Rebels to live-action audiences before they appear in Ahsoka's standalone series later on in the year. Having Thrawn be the puppet master pulling all the strings this season only to be revealed in the finale as a tease for Ahsoka's show makes sense. Whatever happens next, happens to both of us. Plus, that attack on Kalevala was orchestrated with tactics designed to get Bo-Katan mad and willing to get into a battle she couldn't win. That's pure Thrawn strategy right there, baby. To defeat an enemy, you must know them. And someone knew that blowing up Bo-Katan's castle would make her so mad. That's why Thrawn is the best in the biz. If it really is Thrawn behind it all, our big question 
is if Thrawn could be working for the First Order. As a resident of the outskirts of the galaxy whose brain Palpatine really trusted, he could be an asset to a growing First Order. But we're not sure if Thrawn would see the value of Palpatine burning the empire Thrawn helped build to cinders in a temper tantrum. So maybe Thrawn is uniting the Imperial remnants under one banner, taking the chiss out of the New Republic. Get it? Like taking the piss? Either way, us sequel fans keep winning, as the overarching Star Wars story continues to build up to the events of The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, where General Leia Organa was working with the Resistance after years of ineffectual New Republic bureaucracy kept the galaxy from taking the threat of the First Order seriously. That kind of world building is being expanded upon here in The Mandalorian with reference to the decommissioning of the Alliance fleet. Back to Thrawn, there's also another reference to the animated Rebels series in this episode that could be in there to get fans thinking about the series and the blue man himself. The New Republic officer greets Dr. Pershing with Happy Bendu Day. The Bendu is a concept from way back when George Lucas was first planning Star Wars, but long story short, in Rebels, the Bendu is a Force-sensitive creature who represents balance. The Bendu confronts Thrawn in that series, so bringing up the Bendu here might be an oblique reference to Thrawn. We think it's pretty interesting that we haven't seen who is pulling the strings yet this season and are prepared for the reveal when new episodes drop on Disney Plus on Wednesdays. Heck, it could be all three. Palpatine, hiring Thrawn, hiring Moff Gideon, hiring Elliot Kane, I don't know. What? But we wanna know, what do you folks think? Who do you believe is pulling the strings behind the scenes? Is it the First Order, Moff Gideon, Thrawn? Are we missing any important questions? Where do you think I got the biscuits? Let us know in the comments below. Thank you so much for watching, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, stay tuned to Nerdist.com.